0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Mike Levitt gets a grilling on Capitol Hill as Democrats turn his nomination to head the EPA into an indictment of the environmental policies of President Bush. Still, the Utah governor promises to be his own man.
1: The president will always know where I stand. He will hear it many times publicly and sometimes privately.
0: But with no less than four senators vowing to block his nomination, some have this question for the nominee.
1: Why in the world would you want this job?
0: (laughs) Also, where slow and uncertain are seen by some as good. Arriving by ferry is like going through a
2: magic door to an island like none that exists anywhere else in Chile or South America.
0: The Bridge to Chiloé and more this week on Living on Earth,
2: right after this.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The man chosen by President Bush to head the Environmental Protection Agency is taking the heat for the environmental record of the White House during his confirmation hearings. Utah Governor Mike Leavitt had hoped to focus on his collaborative approach to regulation and enforcement. Instead, he got an earful of complaints about the administration's environmental policies. And some Democrats, including several presidential candidates, say they'll block his nomination when it reaches the full Senate. As Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, much of that opposition has little to do with the governor's own record.
4: Mike Leavitt can't say he wasn't warned. The last EPA administrator, Christy Whitman, walked away from the job after a volatile two-year tenure, and Democratic frustration with the Bush environmental record puts the agency in the eye of a political storm. So Nevada Democrat Harry Reid's first question for Levitt might prove the toughest to answer.
1: Why in the world would you want this
4: job? (laughs) Levitt's a three-term governor with a good personal reputation and a mixed record on the environment. Western leaders and industry groups praise his collaborative efforts to clean air and control sprawl. Utah activists and national environmental groups complain Levitt failed to crack down on major polluters and protect sensitive lands from mining and oil and gas drilling. But the Senate's Environment and Public Works Committee had more to say about the agency Levitt's heading toward than the state record he's leaving behind. Ranking minority member James Jeffords welcomed Levitt with a list of complaints about an agency and administration at work behind closed doors.
5: They have been dismantling our environmental laws and the protections that our citizens have come to expect, and I believe deserve, by their government. Governor, many of these decisions have been made with little input from the people who will be most affected by them and must implement them, and this troubles me.
4: Jeffords says he anguished with Whitman as the administration reversed her statements on climate change and regulating carbon dioxide as a pollutant. Democrats, like Oregon's Ron Wyden, say White House politics and not sound science now guide the EPA.
6: I believe it's extraordinarily important that our country have an independent, tough voice to guide environmental policy at the Environmental Protection Agency. The reason I feel that way is that I believe that now... Too many of our country's environmental policies are being cooked by political chefs in the White House kitchen.
4: When Wyden asked Levitt if he would ramp up the agency's enforcement, Levitt told him enforcement alone is not the main goal.
1: The goal is compliance, to find ways to move people to compliance. And there are times when strong enforcement is the only tool available to have that happen. If there are those who avoid or those who evade the law, the full weight of the Environmental Protection Agency and the law will be brought to assure their compliance.
6: Well, that's not being done today. What can you tell us today about how you'd restore the independence and the credibility of this uh, agency that it's enjoyed in the past? The President
1: will always know where I stand. He will hear it many times publicly and sometimes privately. I recognize in the role that he has and the role that I have that what he needs from me is loyalty expressed in the context of he'll know what I believe to be the facts, and he'll also know what the best science is and what the people of the Environmental Protection Agency believe.
4: A number of Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, John Kerry, and Joseph Lieberman, say they will block Levitt's nomination in the Senate. Their objections range from changes in Superfund spending and clean air rules to the administration's handling of the cleanup at ground zero. Levitt avoided taking those issues head-on and used his responses to return to his main theme, a cleaner environment through collaboration and an approach to problem-solving he calls in Libra.
1: It's a Latin word, to Syllables in to move toward and Libra balance to move toward balance. And I have found with experience that the solutions to those problems are found in the productive middle, rarely are they found at the extremes.
4: Levitt's use of that approach as governor won him measured support from moderate Democrats like former Maryland Governor Paris Glendenning and enthusiastic endorsement from Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch.
1: Utah's no. The Governor Levitt took a clean, beautiful, and strong state and made it cleaner, more beautiful, and stronger. What more could we ask for an nominee to head the Environmental Protection Agency?
4: Environmental activists in Utah disagree. They say Levitt favors highway construction over wetlands protection and made the state among the nation's worst in enforcing the Clean Water Act. They say Levitt was quick to take campaign dollars from polluting industries and slow to rein in companies like the Kennecott Copper Mine, the nation's top toxic polluter. Sixteen national environmental groups joined the Utah activists in opposition to Levitt's nomination. Among them is the Environmental Integrity Project, led by the EPA's former head of civil enforcement, Eric Schaefer. Schaefer says it was a chore to get Utah to enforce environmental law.
0: Dealing with Utah was very painful. They were always interested in keeping the federal government out of the state, uh, less interested in making sure that the big companies in the state We're complying with federal laws, and that created a lot of tension. And he does have the code words like collaboration and balance and sound science memorized. What he doesn't have is the record to back it up. That's what we're hoping people will take a look at.
4: Despite those objections, Republicans are confident Levitt will win committee approval. But his fate is less clear in the full Senate, where the threatened blocks could stall his nomination. History is on Levitt's side. The Senate has never rejected a nominee for the position. And the president holds a trump card if Democrats delay. He could put Levitt in office during a congressional recess, an appointment that would last through the end of next year before another round of senatorial review. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
0: Computers continue to get smaller, as do cell phones and cameras, and now scientists are trying to shrink pollution detectors down to the size of a grain of sand. These teeny-tiny devices will be able to recognize contamination in the air and water and alert humans to any dangers. Dr. Michael Saylor heads up a University of California at San Diego research team that's working on these devices. Their latest success, an experiment using so-called smart dust to pinpoint a droplet of oil in water.
6: What we did was we took uh, the particles and we placed some chemistry on them so they would target specifically target an interface. And the interface was a drop of oil in water. And the idea is that we could just sprinkle these little particles. They look like glitter. They're a little bit more complicated than just the glitter you'd buy at the cosmetic store. And uh, we sprinkle them into water, and then they'll uh, fly around through the liquid. And if there's a drop of oil in there, then the chemistry on the surface is set up so that these little particles will go stick to that surface. These little particles look like little mirrors, and when they hit that oil drop, it looks just like a little mini disco ball. And those mirrors will reflect light back to an observer, and so we can read the mirrors. And unlike the mirrors on the disco ball, the little, these little mirrors change color when they know they've seen the, the oil. And so they, they hit that interface, they, they, they stick to it, and they coat it, and then they report back to us that they found the oil. What's the advantage of this process? Uh, the oil drop was just a sort of a model for a cell. And we're trying to get these things to target things like cells, like uh, cancer cells in the body or in uh, maybe an E. coli, a bacterium in drinking water. And so by targeting these cells, they can go find them and tell us that they have found them. And we'd have a way of monitoring, say in the case of a cancer cell, monitoring the health of a patient. In the case of a E. coli or a bacteria in water, we have a way of monitoring the quality of the water.
0: I understand that some of your work involves sending the smart dust uh, not only into
6: liquids, but also about using it in the air. Uh, how would it work in the air? Really, we're using the smart dust in kind of three application areas. We're we're thinking about putting it into the body for medical monitoring. We're thinking about putting it into water for monitoring either drinking water or the quality of you know seawater, for instance. And the last is to try to find uh, identify uh, pollutants in air. And this could be uh, pollutants in the environment in in the air outside or they might just be used to monitor the quality of air in a building. And the real key is that we're making these things so small that we could distribute them widely and make them very inexpensively. And and the kinds of molecules we're trying to target with these little particles in air are things like pollutants, uh, VOCs, so-called volatile organic compounds, things like gasoline or methyl ethyl ketones, an industrial solvent that we can see with these particles, We also have have a big effort looking at uh, chemical warfare agents, and we've been able to tune the chemistry of these particles so they can respond very specifically to sarin gas. And so that's another application. Give us a picture of how a detection system could could operate in the real world sometime. These little codes and these little particles will change, and our scanner can pick that up. And so you could imagine putting these things onto a wall in a building and uh, having them, say, change color, As uh, maybe a chemical gets into the room that's something you don't want to be there, it might be a chemical warfare agent, it might be a a toxic chemical, uh, an industrial solvent, maybe somebody down the hall spills a bucket of paint. Our little particles, uh, if there were, say, vapors in the room, we've made some vapor sensors that could respond to a, a bucket of paint spilled in the room or gasoline or diesel fumes. These little particles would start out green, and they would actually change color to red. And you can see that with your eye, even, if you want. Uh, We usually build systems, little spectrometer systems that can read them and give us a little more information, a, a level of concentration of the pollutant in the air.
0: Michael Saylor is Professor of Chemistry and
6: Biochemistry
0: at the University of California at San Diego. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you. Coming up, hunting frogs and capturing crocs. Tales of the Everglades when we return. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey.
7: Little is known about indoor exposure to chemicals that can alter hormone levels. Now, for the first time, a comprehensive study has looked for a number of these so-called endocrine disruptors in homes. Researchers sampled air and dust in 120 homes on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. They tested for 89 chemicals and found 67, including many endocrine disruptors. The most abundant chemicals in both air and dust were phthalates. Phthalates are compounds used in plastics, food packaging, and personal care products. Researchers also found flame retardants and about two dozen pesticides. The most common was permethrin, an ingredient in household insecticide sprays. A few banned chemicals were also detected, attesting to the slow breakdown rate of chemicals indoors. The pesticide DDT, for example, was banned three decades ago, but it was still present in 65 percent of the homes. Fifteen of the chemicals were detected at concentrations exceeding government guidelines, but for 28 of them, no exposure guidelines exist. What's more, the study's authors, who work at the Silent Spring Institute and Harvard School of Public Health, say there are no exposure guidelines for any chemical that takes into account hormone disruption effects. They add the results of their study should be used as a tool to prioritize research on chemical exposure. That's this week's health update. I'm Diane Toomey.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In 1926, a letter carrier from La Habra, California, planted a seedling in his front yard that would become the mother of the nation's most popular avocado, the Hass. Charles Haas, son of Rudolph Haas, explains that his father was trying to develop a new variety of the tropical fruit.
1: There was this one seedling, though, that he grafted three different times, and all three times the graft died. So he was going to get rid of the tree, but my older brothers and sisters talked him out of it because they liked the fruit. That seedling became the first Haas avocado tree.
0: At first, people were suspicious of the rubbery skin Hass, which is darker than its Green Brothers. But thanks to its durability and nutty taste, Hass avocados now make up more than 80% of all avocados grown in the U.S. The mother of all Hass avocado trees died last year at the age of 76. And the World Avocado Congress will decide next month in Spain what to do with the wood. Some of the descendants of Rudolf Haas have their own ideas. My dad's nephew, my cousin, gets good avocado wood, and he uses them for the back of ukuleles
1: and guitars, puzzles, jewelry, and uh, he's chomping at the bit
0: to get some. And for this week, Haas, the Living on Earth Almanac. The restoration of the Everglades has lost one of its biggest advocates. William Hovler, the U.S. District Judge who has overseen the cleanup for the past 15 years, has been removed from the case for talking to reporters. Judge Hovler chastised Florida lawmakers for delaying a measure that would force the sugar industry to clean up pollution from its processing plants by 2006. The industry now has an additional 10 years to stop the runoff of phosphorus. Critics say the delay could further harm wildlife and vegetation and folks who live in the Everglades and have their own way of monitoring the health of the wetlands might be the first to know. Author Ted Levin has met some of them, and he joins me now to talk about his new book, Liquid Land, A Journey Through the Florida Everglades. Welcome. Hi, Steve. You met a number of great characters uh, in your travels through the marshes. I'm thinking of one of these is a frog hunter named Russell Yates, uh, who was one of the few who I guess was literally born into the culture of the old Everglades. Tell me about him and about this culture he was born into.
5: Well, Russell is probably in his early 60s now. Wouldn't have a whole lot of teeth in his mouth. He only had about four or five, uh, seven years ago. He had a short haircut, um, square shoulders, stood about 5'9", 5'10". And um, he is what's called a frogger. He is actually the only person in South Florida that makes his entire living um, traveling at night with a headlamp in his airboat trying to stick frogs with a, um, a gig, which is shaped like a little trident that Poseidon holds. And he sells these pig frogs to the seafood markets along the East Coast. He has a buyer that comes regularly to see him and lives in a school bus, and he's as nomadic as a Navajo shepherd. And where the frogs are running, he moves and travels uh, along with his wife. Some nights he might have 20 or 30 pounds of frogs. Another night he might have 150 pounds of frogs.
0: Now tell me about the culture that I gather he grew up in uh, catching frogs.
5: Well, his family um, were uh, living in tents along the side of the road, and almost all of their sustenance came out of the Everglades. And they were pretty itinerant, much like migrant workers. They had airboats and pole boats to move around in the glades. Some of them may have been adept at catching turtles, also for a seafood market. Uh, Others may have been trapping. And certainly gator hunting up until the point where it was illegal to gator hunt in the uh, late 1950s, early 1960s.
0: Now, Russell seems like a pretty rare breed himself. But in your book, you observe that he may also be something of a new endangered species. What do you mean by that?
5: Well, I mean... When I went out with him, um, we went out in what is now part of Everglades National Park. It's called the East Everglades. It was bought during the George Bush Senior Administration. It's 103,000 acres, which expands the park. And at that point, before the land was purchased, it was owned by hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, absentee landowners that had bought the land sight unseen. And Russell just went out in the property you know, in his airboat. His land was flooded, and I couldn't imagine anybody building homes out there. And uh, he plied his trade, and then once the National Park acquired the land, which I'm very happy they did, uh, of course Russell becomes evicted because you cannot uh, hunt or trap in a National Park. Russell made his living off the glades, and I spent a lot of time with biologists, and they were all wonderful people, but they had a different view than Russell did. Russell had the view of somebody who depends on the glades for uh, his livelihood. And he was pretty sensitive. That's why he lived in a school bus and drifted around the glades and didn't concentrate too hard in one particular area. At one point in your book, Ted, you go crocodile hunting with
0: Frank Mazzotti, a University of Florida biologist who monitors populations of the American
5: crocodile. Uh, Could you read from your book about your time with him, please? Sure. Color has faded from the western sky. Stars appear, twinkling brushstrokes across the night. Inside Davis Creek, we see the crocodile claw marks have gouged the moral Bank, a basking site, but we do not see an animal. Back in Joe Bay, Frank's spotlight runs a chop, scanning for the red glow of crocodile eyes. As we cruise the coastline, I strain not to miss a thing. Crocodile, Frank mutters. Frank cuts the engine, steps off the boat with alacrity, noose pole in hand, and wades toward the reptile as though he were about to cast a plug for a tarpon. My senses gush. He slips the wire noose over the crocodile's head. The crocodile surges. It leaps, twists, turns, and crashes back into the bay. It leaps again. Frank handles the wild exuberance with a plum and lets the reptile play itself out as though he actually has a tarpon on the line. When the animal finally tires, Frank grabs it. He places one hand behind the head, the other behind the base of the tail, then calmly walks to the boat. Here, take this. I hold the crocodile. An unmarked female, six or seven years old, 36 pounds, four and a half feet long, and kitten calm in my lap. Frank marks her, slicing off the appropriate tail scutes with a hefty knife, number 113. After several minutes, the raw, ossified skin, the color and texture of marshmallow, oozes tiny drops of blood. Frank releases his trophy. Say goodbye, sweetheart. The crocodile flicks her tail and vanishes into black water.
0: Now, why was he looking for a crocodile? You know, we think of the Everglades, we think alligator.
5: Well, it's the northern extension of the range of the American crocodile, and they are highly endangered. There is at best about 400 in South Florida, counting young that are hatching. And their well-being will be a testament to the success of Everglades restoration. If the crocodile population begins to improve uh, in the mangroves at the southern end of the state, we will know that the proper amounts of fresh water have been moving through the Everglades into the bays at the proper time of the year. By the way, why did he need to take a slice out of that uh, lady crocodile? Oh, he makes a permanent scar on the back, and that way if he recaptures her, uh, he will uh, know that he caught her before. He'll see how much she's grown, and more particularly, he'll see how much she's moved.
0: What has Frank been able to tell from his studies of crocodile populations so far?
5: Well, he's figured out pretty quickly that crocodiles do not do well in high salinity. And the salinity in Florida Bay has been extremely high as recently as the early 1990s. The middle 90s and late 90s were very wet years, and, and that helped us soften the salinity but the goal for Frank and for Restoration is to move more fresh water through the Everglades and be able to have the salinity of Florida Bay uh, well below that of sea level, which is about 36 parts per thousand salt of water.
0: Now, towards the end of your book, you have a conversation with a water management scientist who, who says that the solution for the Everglades is to, quote, add water and stir. What do you think of that? What do you see as the best solution for the Everglades?
5: The Everglades themselves have been partitioned into a national park, a national wildlife refuge, an agricultural area, and um, two water conservation areas. And they have all been disconnected. And they should all be one large flowing system to the best of the ability of of hydrologists. So I think the best solution for the Everglades um, would be to eliminate as many canals and levees as possible without threatening current development. Uh, It certainly would put a break on any more draining. And if that could be all reconnected, eliminating several hundred miles of canals and levees, that would be a huge plus. Ted
0: Levin is author of Liquid Land, A Journey Through the Florida Everglades. Thanks for taking this time with me today.
5: It was a pleasure, Steve. Thank you for having me as a guest.
0: September is National Chicken Month, according to the National Chicken Council. And while many regard chickens as food, others see pullets as pretty. Consider the Northeastern Poultry Congress held in western Massachusetts. Now, a chicken show may not have the prestige of its canine cousin, but as you'll hear in this sound montage from Living on Earth*, Diane Toomey, these
8: birds can strut their stuff. We're showing uh, white bearded silkies. The feathers actually look like a fluffy boa that a lady would wear around her neck. And... Um, they have a mulberry comb and they have turquoise earlobes, and they're the only poultry known to have five toes.
4: Uh, a few years ago, uh, Martha Stewart's job was to pick the prettiest chicken of the show, and she had chosen this bird here, which is a, called a white crested blue polish. Um, this does not have a comb, it has a round crest and it's full of feathers and you want it as round as possible and thick and full. Tina Turner, if you can picture that.
1: I have here a cock bird. That means he's more than a year old. He's a dorking breed, and he's a silver-gray variety. That's the color pattern. He's a very gentle bird. Yeah, he likes me, and I like him.
8: They go in the the bathroom sink, they get shampooed and conditioned, they get blown dry. Um, I file their toenails and I oil their combs and they love it. Actually, when I'm blow drying, every one of my birds lean into it with their head.
1: Uh, Their feet get scrubbed. I scrub them with a toothbrush and hot soapy water. I take a uh, toothpick and I clean under the scales, because they go out on the ground. These are very hardy breed. These don't stay inside. I don't, I don't
2: baby them. Um, I'm one of the uh, five judges. Every breed, every variety has a standard of perfection for its size, weight, color. Um, chickens are like people. They, they have good days, they have bad days. Sometimes they don't want to stand up and show to their best ability. These are standard Old English game, which is related to most of the pit games that they use for cockfighting. These are bred more for show, um, and they will come after you. They can be extremely aggressive, so they can be quite a challenge to judge. <laughs> They're tough to get out of the cage. So far, I've been lucky, but we're only about half done. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd eat me if you'd get half the chance, wouldn't you, buddy? You ain't going to get half the chance, I'll tell you right now.
9: <laughs> Come on, everybody, look this way. Come on, big boy. Look at this way, pretty girls.
8: Good boy. My name is Cheryl Barnaba, and I'm here today simply to take photographs of chickens. The pose is everything. Feathers must lay flat on top of each other. You can have any wrinkled feathers. And uh, we definitely want to catch light in the eye and the perfect pose that says, I'm the best.
9: All
8: right, now, we don't need your tail.
9: No jail. <laughs>
0: to see photos of bearded Silkies, white crested Polish, and other fantastic fowl, go to our website, livingonearth.org. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR Presidents' Council, and Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio.
0: It's a challenge to be the environmental candidate when for years you've championed wheels that guzzle gas. But Arnold Schwarzenegger claims he is the environmental choice in the California governor's race, at least for Republicans. To prove it, he's unveiled an environmental agenda that starts with weaning his famous Hummer off gasoline. And he says that's just the beginning. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet
10: reports. So let me tell you about my plan for our environment.
8: Arnold Schwarzenegger chose the beachside town of Carpinteria on a Sunday to roll out his environmental plan, but protesters managed to find the event and nearly drowned him out with slogans like, Hummers aren't green, as he described the need for more reliance on solar and hydrogen
10: power. As governor, I will create a network of hydrogen highways throughout California with clean hydrogen fuel stations every 20 miles to help clean our air.
8: Schwarzenegger says Detroit needs this kind of push to produce more fuel cell vehicles. Then several times he repeated his concern about California's air quality.
10: The smog has gotten worse in the last few years. We must reverse this to protect the health of our people. So that we must replace the oldest and dirtiest cars, trucks and buses with clean alternative fuel vehicles.
8: HE PROMISED TO FOLLOW THROUGH ON STREAM AND beach water CLEANUP MEASURES THE BUSH ADMINISTRATION OPPOSES.
10: I WILL ALSO TAKE ACTION TO CLEAN UP OUR DRINKING WATER AND OUR OCEAN. THAT MEANS TREATING SEWAGE, TACKLING STORMWATER RUNOFF AND PREVENTING POLLUTION AT THE SOURCE.
8: Though it may come as a surprise to Americans who know him through his action films, Schwarzenegger's environmental plan is thorough enough that in some parts of the country it might win him environmental endorsements, that is, if he could explain his long-time and very public affair with the fuel-hungry Hummer. It was Schwarzenegger himself who helped persuade General Motors 11 years ago to produce the military Humvee as a civilian vehicle. Now the candidate seeks to morph that potential liability into an indication of his initiative as mechanics convert his Hummer to alternative fuel.
10: I want to show them my car when it's done and inspire Detroit and let them know that this is what you can do. And I guarantee you they will send the message very loud and clear and they will start building Hummers They will have hydrogen fuel.
8: Asked why he didn't do this earlier, Schwarzenegger said he'd
10: only recently learned it was possible. Let me tell you something. The things that I've learned in this last month since I'm running for office is spectacular.
8: Schwarzenegger doesn't claim to understand the environmental details. Instead, he's relying on expert counsel, including high-profile environmentalist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's also his wife's cousin, and a team of less famous but longtime environmental Republicans. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet.
0: Just ahead, the story of a bridge that may disconnect a people from their culture. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graber.
9: An odd feeling in the pit of your stomach, a sense that someone is watching you, chills down your spine. Scientists say these often inexplicable emotions might be explained by infrasound. Infrasound is extremely low-frequency sound played at levels that most human ears can't hear. To test the effects of infrasound on humans, a team of scientists in England used a pipe to create a 20 hertz tone. Then they reproduced the tone during a concert, mixing it in and out of the contemporary music being played on stage. Almost a quarter of the 750 people in the audience reported strange feelings during the pieces that included infrasound, such as a sensation of sorrow or fear or getting chills. Scientists don't know exactly how infrasound causes these responses. The psychologist on the team says emotional responses might occur when the brain tries to interpret low-frequency sounds. Volcanoes and earthquakes, for example, make infrasound when active. But to understand why some people have physical responses, such as feeling hot or cold sensations, the researchers have invited a physiologist to join the continuing study. It's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Cynthia Graber.
0: And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At the northern end of the archipelago that stretches a thousand miles down Chile toward Cape Horn is an island the size of Puerto Rico called Chiloé. Chiloé has developed its own mythology and culture thanks to its isolation. Its folklore, quaint towns, succulent seafood, and the picturesque ferry crossing have made it a tourism treasure. But some fear the island's mystique may soon be lost. For its 2010 bicentennial, Chile wants to build the longest bridge in Latin America to join Chiloé with the rest of the nation. The government promises faster access to hospitals and easier access for tourists. Yet many islanders claim this bridge isn't really for them, but for a fish, and a foreign fish at that. As part of Worlds of Difference, a series by Homelands Productions, Alan Weissman reports.
11: A ghost is singing. His words tell how he drowned when a storm snatched the boat that was taking them to his wedding. The place where his bride waited in vain is a big green island that hangs like a teardrop off the south coast of Chile, called Chiloé. On Chiloé, hearing ghosts or seeing spirits is accepted, even expected. There's La Pincoya, a long-haired nymph in a seaweed skirt whose dance lures the fish. Or El Trauco, the gnarly forest troll who's to blame when single girls on Chiloé find themselves pregnant. And our unlucky groom is now surely aboard a schooner named El Caleuche.
2: El Caleuche is un barco, un barco fantasma.
11: El Caleuche is a phantom ship.
2: Its crews are drowned sailors lost at sea. Whenever the fog enshrouds the
11: shore or moves up the rivers, that means El Caleuche is here. For centuries, the phantom ship Caleuche had no shortage of drowned seamen. Chile's original natives, the Mapuche Indians, had only bark canoes to reach their cousins on the mainland, a mile and a half across a windy channel. The sailboats used by settlers sent to this farthest outpost of the Spanish Empire weren't much safer. We're in the Santa Maria Loreto
2: de Achao Church, the
11: oldest wooden church in
2: Chile.
11: Chiloe historian Renato Cardenas is descended from a Spanish sea captain who ran aground here in 1613. Stroking his silky gray goatee, Renato explains that this island was so remote that missionaries couldn't even get nails to build churches. This church is made with wooden pegs, no nails. Isolated together, Chiloé Spaniards and Mapuches intermingled bloodlines and beliefs and called themselves Chilotes. In 1958, regular ferry service finally began. Soon, tourists arrived to try to glimpse El Trauco and to see stilt houses and wooden churches built from pegs and interlocking shingles, so charming that they've been recognized by UNESCO.
2: The churches are now official World Heritage Sites. Chiloé also has more than 30 folk festivals every summer.
11: Felix Oyasun heads a local development council. He says tourists come for Chilote folklore and music and a cuisine of 200 native potatoes and huge mussels and oysters. But the enchantment, he says, starts with the crossing.
2: A y por el canal Arriving by ferry is like going through a magic door to an island like none that exists anywhere else a, in Chile or y South y America. Yo diría de tiene mucha
11: Which is why he was stunned to hear about Chile's plan to turn his island into a peninsula. For its bicentennial in 2010, the government wants to build Latin America's longest suspension bridge at a cost of a third of a billion dollars. That would turn a 20-minute ferry passage into a three-minute car trip. It will be
2: a real shock for the tourists. Chiloé needs an airport, a hospital, roads. It would be a contradiction to have a gorgeous luxury of a bridge to such a deficient place. The government
5: has to come to its senses.
11: Nine ferry boats with four diesels apiece run constantly between the mainland and the island. The ferries serve their function, but they just aren't enough. Businessman Sergio Villalobos leads support for the bridge from the town of Ancud. He thinks the sheer volume of traffic a bridge carries would more than make up for the loss of some romantic tourists. When the Golden Gate was built, they went from 10,000 trips a month to 140,000 vehicles every day. And all those customers, he adds, will fortify culture, not harm it. We will train more people to form folklore groups for the tourist flow, like hula professionals in Hawaii or mariachis in Mexico. That used to be just for fun. Now there are mariachi schools. We need to do that here. Bridges bring progress and new industry. Ankud could use new industry. This town of thirty thousand used to be Chiloé's fishing capital, but cod and sea bass are now so depleted that it's down to one processing plant. Yet when you mention the jobs the bridge might bring to local fishermen, you don't get the expected reply. It will be worse for us because traditions will be lost, the magic of the island will be lost, our mythology will be lost. Bridges form connections, unite communities. Yet all over this island, emotions run high against one that would link Chiloé to the modern world. One reason, say these fishermen, is the belief that it's not really for Chiloé at all.
2: It's
11: just to benefit the salmon industry. In Chile, fishing is fishing, but salmon is an industry. Today, half the salmon U.S. consumers eat comes from here. But 25 years back, there were no salmon in this country. We are in Curaco de Veles,
2: an historic place. This is where salmon farming began, not just in Chiloé, but in all
11: Chile. A lot of us are grateful for farmed salmon. In an age of collapsing sea harvests, groceries and sushi bars everywhere abound with thick orange salmon fillets. Maybe you've heard that Chile is the world's second biggest salmon exporter after Norway. But in these globalized times, that's a little confusing, because half the Chilean companies are owned by Norwegians themselves or their European neighbors. In the 1970s, tests showed that isolated Chile had some of the clearest water left on the planet. Soon, European salmon growers were floating giant cages of Atlantic salmon transplanted from Norway in lakes and inlets all around the Pacific island. Renato Cardenas talks to a fisheries technician at a new installation on a bay near Castro, the city where he teaches. We have
2: 280,000 fish, around 40,000 per cage. In two months, we'll double.
11: All those fish, yet only two men are working here. Automated feeders deliver pellets made of ground-up sardines, anchovies, and jack mackerel. To keep the salmon coming, Chile has become the world's second biggest producer of fish meal. A motor puts food to the cages,
2: so fewer workers are needed, and the salmon grow more uniformly. We monitor by camera to make sure they eat everything, so less food is lost.
11: Yet many pellets pass right through the cages, Combined with salmon feces on lake bottoms and sea floors, they create enormous algae blooms in Chiloé's once-crystalline waters. The same thing happened in Norway, one reason why the Norwegians came here. Chiloé fishermen claim this pollution and aggressive escaped salmon are ruining natural fishing grounds.
2: The total sales of uh, to the year 2002 were $973 million worth of exports.
11: Rodrigo Infante, general manager of the National Salmon Growers' Trade Association, says Chile is on its way to becoming the world's number one salmon producer.
2: We feel the bridge itself will be a positive thing for the island and and its people itself. The bridge,
11: he explains, is actually key to a grand plan that goes uh, far beyond Chiloé. Well, Chile has
2: 55,000 kilometers of coastline eh, and 95% of that to the south.
11: Plenty, plenty, plenty of areas to be developed. That southern coastline is a pristine puzzle of islands, fjords, and volcanoes. No road can traverse it, but a bridge to Chiloé would extend the Pan-American Highway a hundred miles farther, creating a gateway to those untapped regions. Chile's grand vision is fish farms clear down to Tierra del Fuego to triple salmon production. (laughs) On the eastern shore of Chiloé, Renato Cardenas and his cousin Pancho gather mussels. I was born here on the shore.
2: I grew up like algae,
11: like a mollusk. This beach was my playground. Behind them rises their hamlet's wooden church steeple, and hills where teams of oxen plow. In front lie many green islands, and beyond, on the mainland, the snowy peaks of the Chilean Andes, golden in the afternoon light. Just offshore, Bob's a huge raft of the omnipresent aluminum cages near a line of abandoned styrofoam floats.
2: That's a salmon
11: farm, and that's the remains of one.
2: They contaminated the bottom
11: so badly, they have to move it. Where they moved it was right atop rich shellfish beds where Renato's relatives collect so they've had to work a little harder to fill their 30-kilo sacks with two local mussel varieties, small sweet choros and big, meaty cholgas. Inside, three women at a wood stove are grating a heap of yellow and purple potatoes, mixing them with lard and flour, then patting them into rolls.
7: In truth...
11: There have always been bridges to Chiloé, like the satellite dish that brings the Simpsons in Spanish to the TV the kids watch while their mothers cook. Another leads back to a heritage shared across time and ocean with other Pacific Isles, from Easter Island to Polynesia. What they are preparing here would be called luau on Hawaii. On Chiloé, it is curanto. On the hillside above the house, Renato and the men, cousins and neighbors, cut three foot wide pangay leaves. They'll cover the loaves of potato bread and the mounds of mussels to seal in the steam from the fire heated rocks. The cooking hole is the same one they've been using for generations. It took only an hour for the coranto to cook, but the eating lasts twice as long. Silence descends except for the clatter of mussel shells and the passing of wine bottles. Until Pancho's accordion and the guitars come out. Sometime past midnight, the music ends. Renato Cardenas sits with his cousins on the wooden steps of the house his grandfather built. Directly above hang the Milky Way and the Southern Cross, but they shine fainter than they used to. There is no night here anymore. Offshore, the huge platform of floating salmon cages glares under floodlights. About a year ago, someone reasoned that since salmon feed by sight... By adding lights, you could grow them to size in eight months instead of
2: 12.
11: The world becomes tangled in sound. Along with the night, tranquility has also vanished. Since little electricity reaches Chiloé's tiny coastal hamlets, each salmon raft has a droning diesel generator to power its lights. Chilote legends say that Chiloé was formed when an angered sea serpent, Kai, Kai made the waters rise, flooding the land. Taking pity, the land serpent, Tenten, Ten, lifted the mountains and the islands so people could seek refuge. About a decade
2: ago, a big storm here destroyed half the salmon cages, masses of free salmon swimming in the open. The people's explanation was that Kai Kai was responding to what they are doing to the sea. This was Kaikai's revenge.
11: It's well known on Chiloé that the center column of the new bridge will rest on a rock that used to be an island until an earthquake in 1960 submerged it. Or maybe that was Kaikai, Kai too. The spirits won't let the bridge happen either, says one of Renato's cousins. Renato smiles. Maybe not, he replies. For Living on Earth, on the island of Chilauea, I'm Alan Wiseman reporting. Our story
0: on Chilauea is part of Worlds of Difference, a Homeland's production series funded in part by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For pictures and more information on Chilauea, visit our website, livingonearth.org. week, that's living on earth. Next week, some European nations are moving to ban the ritual slaughter required for kosher foods. They say it's cruel to animals. But Jewish leaders say anti Semitism is at play. I don't think there's ever been a time when the Jewish community since the war has
1: felt itself to be under pressure. And its pressure comes from the sorts of arguments that are motivated. By other
0: agendas rather than the pure agenda of cruelty to animals. The kosher controversy next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to our website livingonearth.org We leave you this week riding the trams of Lisbon. Michael Rosenberg and Hans Ulrich Werner made this composition from sounds recorded along the city's many streetcar routes. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. You can find us at LivingOnearth.org. Our staff includes Carly Ferguson, Elizabeth Klein, Liz Lempert, Nathan Marcy, Susan Shepherd, James Kerwood, and Tom Simon. Al Avery runs our website. Our interns are Rebecca Griffin, Kathy Lutz, and Wynne Perry. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation.
11: This is NPR, National Public Radio.